In this episode, we speak to our boy Jahin Tanvir. We dive deep into the man behind the success. So he's very popular and he's on TV and all of these cool things, but we dive down into his story, what it means to be a young leader at 22 years old after selling his first business, being acquired by the Australian School of Entrepreneurship and being on TV and having an incredible profile running workshops for Canva for the likes of Toyota and at the F1 Formula One Grand Prix as well. So listen in, it's not one that you want to miss. So before we start the podcast today, inviting you all to join me in a meditation so that we can find some ground, find some space, and then dive in and speak on some some real shit as well. Hear the story of Jahin and all the work that he's done, but also inviting him to join us for a conversation as well. So it's not just a one-way street. So inviting you to close your eyes at this point in time, finding a seat that is comfortable for you. So I would recommend placing your feet firmly on the ground and then following the chain up from the feet. So finding awareness and where your ankles are placed, where your knees are sitting. And then bringing the attention and the awareness into the spine. Your spine is one of the most important assets to your body. Keeps you straight. It helps you maintain the structure. So inviting you to find a sense of strength, but also softness in your spine at the same time. So in meditation, we focus a lot on the breath. The breath is like a metronome that ticks in and out, but it brings in your life force, your prana, as they say. So as you breathe in and out of the nose, feeling the air that enters your nostrils, Can you feel the hairs tickle as you breathe in and as you breathe out? Noticing the sensation of your breath through your nose. So your breath contains two parts, the inhale and the exhale. But notice at the top of the breath, there is a suspension just before you inhale and that transition 
to an exhale. Think of a trapeze artist when they're swinging from trapeze to trapeze and they're switching. Consider that feeling of switching in between an inhale and an exhale. The beautiful thing about meditation and focusing on your breath is that when you lose focus, when inevitably thoughts enter your head, you can come back to your breath at any time. So invite you now for three deep breaths in the nose and big sighs out of the mouth. Just releasing any stagnant air, releasing any anxieties that your body may be holding on. And just letting go. And so when you're ready, slowly, slowly opening your eyes, coming back into the room, taking your time to reintegrate. Feeling your body, maybe rubbing your knees, your hammies, just to remind you that you're, you're human and living in this world, hey. <laughs> and look, I'm open for comments and feedback on, on that short practice as well. Yeah. That was incredible. Yeah. I think that was the most stillness I've had in weeks, which wow. is ridiculous to say. Where'd you go, Jasper? Yeah, that was like really cool to, I guess, start the podcast with a meditation. And when we started to breathe, I was like, I started to have anxiety. I was like, shit, did I press the record button? Yeah. And I was like, maybe I should open my eyes and look. And then I just had to remind myself like, hey, you're in this moment right now. If it isn't recording, that's fine. We'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. Just focus on the breath where we are, be present and just listen to the, the, the guide that's guiding us through this practice in this moment. So yeah, I was, I've been like dealing with a bit of anxiety like the past few weeks because I started a new job, my first design mm -hmm. job. Yeah. And it was just like, 
I just remember I was like, shit, I gotta do something that's gonna help me be present again. So yeah, like I, I every now and then when I'm feeling a bit that anxiety in the morning, mm-hmm. I'll go to the steam room and have like a 20 minute guided meditation and just feel so, so much better. Mm-hmm. Like even this morning, like we haven't done a podcast in a while. So I'm like, shit, <laughs> like <laughs> I'm a bit anxious. Like how's yeah. this gonna turn out? And I was like, all right, I'm gonna do a guided meditation. Just like, just feeling, being present and just like rubbing my, 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 my legs just to feel human and mm-hmm. like I'm right here, like it's okay, you know? So I was, no, thank you for that. That was cool, yeah. Cool, that's a, we're trying new things yeah. every time, right? So just then I was like, why don't we do a meditation? Yeah. But thanks for sharing all that as well. And look, welcoming Jahin to the podcast this week as well. So he's a, a special guest from Sydney, from Western Sydney. And yeah, super excited to have him on and, and share his stories and, and talk about what it means to be a young person on a meteor, meteorotic, I can't say the word, <laughs> but a big rise, right? You're yeah. on a rocket ship and a lot of people are seeing that and, and are very supportive and probably somewhat jealous of, of your journey so far, right? But yeah, super keen to, to dig into that today. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. This is one of my first in-person podcasts, so I'm very excited. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about your experiences with stillness because we only spent five minutes mm. at the start here and you're saying this is the most still you've been in weeks. Yeah. yeah, I think my relationship with stillness as a whole is a work in progress, to say the least. I think my life is so chaotic right now in the last year or so where for me to just sit down and focus on breathing, as much as I've tried meditation, it's just never worked for me because mm. I've always just been like, what am I doing? Is this, is this the right thing to do? Like, yeah. what am I doing? Like, is this the right way? Because it's just so different to normal life and just, you know, action, action, action. Mm. So it was, it was a refreshing thing to say the least. Yeah. How, how, how are your habits these days? Because ironically, you started a social enterprise called Breathe. (laughs) (laughs) But you, yeah, worked on it, built it for six months and were acquired by the ASE group. So with all the work that you're doing and, and from what I'm hearing and from what you post, but at the same time, what you choose and decide to share mm. with the world mm. as well and what you've decided to curate and, and build. Tell me about how hard you work. I'm, I'm curious on, on your habits and what is the making of Jahin as well because your habits form your identity, yeah. don't they? I think I'm a machine more times than I'm a man sometimes. <laughs> um, no, I, I think habits for me are the fundamental thing. Mm. to anything you want to achieve. I'm a big fan of Atomic Habits by James Clear. Mm. And he has a very famous line where he says, it's all about the marginal gains, getting 1% better every time. And I think when I was in high school, for example, I was always just like, when's the overnight success? Mm. When can I go the next day and just be this different person, this very you know, emphatic person that people would be, you know, gravitate towards. And I've always wanted that overnight success thing, but I realized it never works. And so when I changed my mentality, it was about, first year, second year uni, where I was like, let me just focus on small things every single day yeah. and see what happens. Mm. Small things like, you know, waking up a little bit earlier than before. Small things like actually tracking what I'm eating. What time am I eating lunch, dinner? Small things. That's been fundamental. And I live and die by habits. 
because it's changed my life. And it, again, it's small things that really do make a massive difference. Mm -hmm. mm. So you're waking up at 5.30 a.m. Five o'clock. Five o'clock. Five o'clock. Gym's at 5.30. Yeah, I mean, I am a certified night owl. So I love my 1 a.m., 2 a.m., the silence. I think mm. it's epic, like yeah. being up at that night. But the reality is that's inefficient. Yeah. Nobody's up at that hour. You mm. could get nothing done. And so when I started my role at AAC, I realized I'm running out of time every single day. And the only way I can manage that is if I wake up and become a morning person, as they call it. So <laughs> me being a very extreme and obsessive person, I was like, instead of trying 8 a.m., 7 a.m., let's do 5 a.m. Mm. Let's, let's go all the way uh, back there. And so wake up at 5 a.m. My first thing to do is drink a cold glass of water. Mm -hmm. That's my sort of, you know, morning jump, morning boost, no caffeine for the mm -hmm. first hour or two, and then hit the gym. Yeah, that is my first routine every single day. It doesn't matter if it's a weekday or weekend. That is my routine, and it just gives me a lot of comfort. But yeah. it also gives me that I'm starting the day off right Damn. more than anything. It's incredible because best practice, and they always tell you this, is wake up and go to sleep the same time every day, mm. even on weekends. Right? Mm. For me, Monday to Friday is so easy, but then the weekends come <laughs> and you're just kind of like, all right, out with mates, you kind of drag, hey, I don't have work tomorrow, you'll be on your phone for a bit longer. Mm. Do you maintain the practice on weekends as well, as you, as you just said? Oh, absolutely. I, I went to bed yesterday at 3 a.m. Um, <laughs> weekdays, I am very strict on my yeah. timing. Weekends, I'm very flexible. But the reality is when you get into the habit and that routine, your body just wakes up. Mm -hmm. So I went, obviously, went out with friends, haven't seen my friends in a while. So Saturday night was epic. I had a really good time. Went to bed at 3 a.m. because we were just talking, having fun. My body just woke up at 5 o'clock. Mm -hmm. Even if, it, if I'm not on too many hours of sleep, yeah. I'm still just adjusted to that energy level. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think training your body and obviously catching up on that sleep. Sleep is very important. Burnout is real. Um, <laughs> but it's all about just, again, like you said, consistency. And I think your body understands that and accepts that. And then once you get into that stage, you're just like, this is me. This is what I can fall back on. Yeah. So yeah. 3 a.m., but it was a good night to say the least. <laughs> so tell me about, okay, you go to the gym at 5.30 or so. Is that a gym outside of your house? You drive there? I walk there. You walk so there? So gym at home by driving is about five minutes so walking is about 15 minutes and i love my morning walk i blast some music i walk down i just feel happy because nobody's out yeah. it's pitch black and it's just like this is my time mm -hmm. i'm just walking like if i want to sing i'm going to sing it's just my alone time yeah. and so i walk there do my gym session um that's the how i call it is that's my 45 to one hour of just me time no emails no social media I don't get that in other days. So that is my time of me time. And then once I'm done, I walk back again, singing, happy. I was awake. <laughs> yeah. I was awake at that time. Um, and then start work as soon as I come back. Yeah. Amazing. So what, have you always been that, like you mentioned that transition from being a night owl to a morning person? Did it take time to adjust or did you just like instantly be like, oh, I can start waking up at 5 a.m.? Yeah, I think it was more about necessity than choice to right. be honest with you i think when i joined the australian school of entrepreneurship it was so demanding where it was just like what i used to do before this mm. could not count otherwise i would be grilled alive and so i needed <laughs> to make some changes that would benefit my life that would benefit my performance um, and you know be a better leader and so one of the things i realized is i need more time on my hands i need to be more energized and so waking up in the morning was that thing 
Um, the first few days to a few weeks were horrible, <laughs> miserable. I was reliant on caffeine and yeah. coffee and, you know, Red Bull. But then ultimately you realize, why am I doing this? It's mm. because I want more time to mm. actually make mm. good of my day. And it just became like a routine where I was just like, this is my comfort now. It's not yeah. uncomfortable anymore. It's just, if I don't wake up at 5am, I feel like, what is happening? What am I going to do today? Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's taken a bit of time, but mm. I enjoy it now. Yeah. Awesome. Like we, I used to be a 5am person as well. Mm. And I could resonate with that. Um, waking up at 5am for such a long period of time. And then your body just gets used to it. Mm. But eventually I, <laughs> I started waking up really late. So now I wake up at like 7 a.m. So that two hour difference, I can feel it. Oh man, in that two hours, I would have had so much more time to do my writing and just like have my me time as well, right? And we for a period of time, we started doing, what was it, Monday morning? Oh, morning. Early rises. Early rises, that's what it's called. It's been so long, I've already forgotten about it. We were doing like, trying to wake up at 5.30 a.m., doing our best to wake up early because we realized, yes, we had more time, but we realized, shit, we were burning out quick mm. because of it. Mm -hmm. And that why wasn't strong enough for us to keep doing it. Mm. So we, we kind of stopped that now. And now we're just like chilling and waking up at our own times. I don't know. What time do you wake up usually? Generally 6. 6 a.m. These oh, days. Damn. Yeah, 6. That's what we learned through our early rises campaign. Yeah. Mm. We were pushing each other to create more time so that we can do more things that we love. So we started waking at five, 5.30 and, and just pushing that start much earlier. Mm. And because of that, we're like, we've developed the the body senses and the circadian rhythm for us probably started earlier, right? And, but we realized that we burnt ourselves out pretty quickly yeah. doing this and forcing it as well. So I think the learnings from that came with, have a strong why mm. on, on why you're, starting so yeah. early yeah. as well and you were mentioning that discipline is so important i realized that this week because i felt like i was i feel worse now not having a lot of discipline in myself like i used to go to gym twice a day i used to go to gym wow. straight after work i used to go to gym for like two three hours now i've like i've cut that back to like 15 minutes to half an hour and i feel shit i feel mm. shit inside and i've been waking up in the morning and looking at myself in the mirror i'm like fuck i'm fat I gained so much weight and I was like, I realized like how important discipline is. Mm. And because I had that discipline back in the day, like I felt so much better. I felt healthier. And now I'm trying to figure out how can I build that discipline again? So do you have any like, I, I guess, tips or advice from your learnings and experiences to build that discipline? Yeah, absolutely. I think Again, I think it's this case by case thing mm. for different people. Um, for me personally, the reason I'm so disciplined is because I realize if I want to feel good about life, yeah. I got to maintain these very <laughs> specific habits. Like my mental health is directly proportional to my physical health. Mm -hmm. If I am in shape, I am happier than I've ever been. If I'm overweight, I'm miserable. Yeah. I don't like living. Like mm. that is genuinely my sort of um, mentality there. And so yeah. figuring that out at, you know, at, at a young age, I was just like, okay, if I want to perform at a high level, whether it's in business, my relationships, my friendships, my family responsibilities, I need to maintain the things that make that tick. Yeah. And so when I figured that out, I was like, okay, these are non-negotiables for me. These are things that I always have to do. And if I can do that, I know I'll be the best version of myself. Mm. If I don't do it, then I know I'm going down a you know a dark pathway yeah. or I'm not doing the best I can. So I think figuring out things that work um, and then 
making that a non-negotiable things that you have to stamp mm. down and say this yeah. is me definitely definitely and that's why i've been trying to do at least the past couple of weeks especially starting my new job so it's very different to where i used to have i was just in warehousing so it was like 7 a.m start to 3 p.m now we're, we're working from like 9 a.m to like 7 p.m sometimes mm. and it it's I'm, I'm realizing now like i understand that I guess that office job, that corporate mindset of like, it's, it's pretty tough. And for me, it was a, a quite a big adjustment from going to like a laborious work, physical labor to using your brain for problem solving and like having the anxiety to, to work, have like these clients that, you know, that they're paying you for these jobs. It's just like, shit, like I want to do a good job. It's my first ever mm -hmm. like job in the industry. So it was just like, I put so much pressure on myself to, mm -hmm to be a certain way. And that actually fucked with me because, because of that pressure, I was in my head and I wasn't performing at my best. So it actually worked the opposite. So it was, it's crazy, you know? It's interesting to hear, I think your mindset of, all right, high performance, what is the different dimensions of high performance, mm. right? So your mental, your body, are there any other dimensions or non-negotiables that allow you to become who you are, to be, look, the star on stage, right? <laughs> and I know that brings with it a lot of pressure mm. as well because people see you as, look, this incredible young man, he's made a, a rocket ship rise, right? Mm. This is a dream start for a lot of people. Like, tell us about high performance. Tell us about the pressures of the rise as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a as I like to call it, a high performance nut to say the least. Um, and it's funny because when it comes to my professional life, my career, I'm obsessive. Like I am genuinely obsessive. I love what I do. I am crazy about it. When it comes to my personal life, I am incredibly laid back. So mm. I'm the type of person that you'd ask, well, what do you want for lunch? You'd be like, whatever, mm. whatever you want. We'll grab something off the street. Yeah. If you ask me for work, like where are we going for a team dinner? We're going here. I've made a reservation at 7.30 p.m. If that closes, we've got options here, which is 500 meters away, 600 meters away. I'm obsessive. And so for me, high performance relates to my career more mm. than anything. It's yeah. the reflection of the work that I do and I put out to the world. And so, again, it's a mental thing. It's a mindset thing. I do. I, re I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen. I read a lot of books all about how can I master my mind more than anything. Because mm -hmm. I truly believe if you are good up there, every, everything else works out. Mm -hmm. because there's so much noise, especially when you're young. There's so much pressure, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. There's so many expectations. But the reality is everybody's stuck up here. Mm. Everybody's got their own demons that they're battling. Yeah. If you can understand that and not control it, but just manage your own thoughts, everything else works out. Mm. Everything else you attract. And yeah. so I focus a lot on that, the mindset side of things, the physical side of things. I want to look good. You know, I want to feel like I'm fit. I can actually go for a run and come back and not be huffing and puffing come back and do a zoom meeting so i think things like that i really i'm a massive high performance nut because i see the change it's made in my life but i also i just enjoy it i love mm -hmm. the idea of you yeah. can wake up earlier and be more productive like progress for me is addictive i love that mm -hmm. so yeah I, I i love that more than anything but also the delayed gratification of it all and, and you're working hard and you're earning it as well because a fit body you can't really buy that can you no and i remember a chat with one of our boxer mates, Kevin, as well. He was like, all right, my body's a Ferrari. Why wouldn't you, why would you settle for less? Mm -hmm. Right? But I've, I've seen in the past, like, 
and a what I admire about you is your hustle, mm. like straight up hustle as well. Yeah. So I think I've seen you in a meeting with, I think his name is Sahil Bloom. Mm. Yeah, so he is Big a fan. high performance <laughs> nut as mm. well, right? So he's probably the uh, the epitome of a, a knowledge worker slash content creator and someone with an incredibly global brand mm. as well. Tell me about your, your meeting with him and how you got to know him and, and had that quick chat with him. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it falls back on what you mentioned, the hustle mentality. So I, uh, I love Twitter. I'm a big fan of Twitter because of the ideas that people share, not the controversial side, just, just the content side of things. <laughs> um, and so I was just started following Sahil, who's all around high performance and how to make your life better. And he made a tweet randomly, um, I think last year, all around, if you're a young person, more than anything, you need like a mentor or something mm. like that. And so I was like, oh, okay, I'm a young person. And he just tweeted that out literally 12 minutes ago, I think when I saw it. And so like, let me find his email. <laughs> let me send an email to him and say, hey, I just saw your, to your tweet. This is a tweet. I'm a young person. You said they need a mentor. Can I jump on a call with you to mm. ask you a few questions? That was my hustle. Just to get to, just to see that it can be done, that I can jump on a call with someone like Sehul Bloom, who is obviously very famous for his industry. Mm -hmm. And just learn from him more than anything. Yeah. Nothing mm -hmm. to get out of him. No, I don't want this or any opportunities or any internships. I just want to jump on a call, see if you're actually real. Yeah. The way you speak, does it reflect on the content that you're producing mm -hmm. on Twitter? Yeah. And I sent that email, very, very short email. And he got back to me in less than 24 hours. And he's like, when, when are you free next? That's yeah. it. No, hi, hello, when are you free next? Question mark. And I was mm -hmm. like- I, I'm not complaining. I'm free at this time. And obviously he's in the, he's in New York. So mm. I woke up at about 3.30 just to chat with him for 15 minutes. Mm. Yeah, right. But the advice he gave me was incredible. It was just about, you know, actions, taking actions, mm -hmm. um, not giving in to external noise. And it was just the idea that I got to meet him because I sent him an email from seeing one tweet. Yeah. That hustle mentality has gotten me to many places. And, you know, again, that's the reality is, Obviously, I post a lot on social media and mm -hmm. I show my work, but that's only 10% of my life. People see the highlights and yeah. people see what I want to show them. Yeah, exactly. And it's always the good things. Like I'm at <laughs> Formula One, we're doing all these cool things. That's what I want to show them. Mm. But the 90% is just, like I said, I feel more like a machine than a person sometimes because yeah. I'm just working. It's it's the disappointments. It's the, re it's the rejections. It's the resilience. Yeah. It's the, I'm on my knees sometimes and I'm just like, this was supposed to go through. How didn't it go through? Mm. But then picking yourself up back up and saying, okay, we'll go again tomorrow. That's what people don't see. People mm. see the great things because I show that, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to go on my Instagram story and start crying and be like, oh, I had a horrible day. No, <laughs> yeah. I think that's what high performance is for me. The mm. idea that you can be resilient. You can show this part of you, but also when nobody's looking, that's your true confidence, who you are. Yeah. And that's for me, like what I want to build more for myself before I, you know, have to show other people what I am. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you think you got your high performance, like habits from? Your drive. Where your, do drive you, your drive, yeah. Oh, is yeah. it from your parents? Is it something you grew to learn or mm. where does it come from? I think definitely parents. Yeah. So I was born in Bangladesh. I'm a first generation migrant, moved to this country with both my parents, mom and dad in 2003. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, seeing my parents as migrants, the hustle they had is, is you know, acres away from what my hustle is. Mm. My dad balanced three jobs wow. and a PhD. <sighs> my mom, you know, balanced family, mm. keeping everything together, studying, 
mm. working in childcare, seeing that, seeing those role models, I was just like, I have to give back that sacrifice. Yeah. If I do nothing, if I don't have that work ethic, I'm an embarrassment. Like that's how I tell myself because yeah. I've seen them more than anything. I've seen survival from them, not flourishing. I've seen them survive yeah. paycheck to paycheck. Like I come from, like my dad's obviously an academic. Mm. You don't get paid much. <laughs> my mom, her source of income for the family was childcare. You don't get paid much. Yeah. And so seeing that and seeing how they still made it and still gave me the childhood, which I look back with a yeah. lot of smiles, a lot of cheerful, you know, they didn't let me even think about some of the things that happened. Yeah. I didn't even know some of the financial hurdles, for example, growing up because mm. they kept it away so so eloquently. So, because of us, mm. for myself and my younger brother. And so, for me, anything I do now is always, how can I give at least half of that sacrifice back? Mm. I can't uncry their tears. I can't mm. give them the those struggles back, those that time back. Mm. But what I can do is just live a life that at least they can keep their chin up and say, our son actually did something that mattered. That that sacrifice mattered. Wow. That those, you know, long nights, those three jobs, doing a PhD mattered yeah. somewhere. So I think that's, as you mentioned, that's where my why comes from. Just giving back to my parents because mm. they are my role models and yeah. I've seen them work ridiculously, like mm. crazy. And so mm. if I could just give half of that back, that's everything for me. Wow. Amazing. Man, I admire you like, <laughs> to, to have those realizations and thoughts because. I've only been feeling that way recently. Like I was in the shower the other day. I was like, wow, like- You showered the other day? <laughs> I had a shower. <laughs> oh, when I was showering now. Uh, oh, yeah, I shower every day, guys. Jesus. What's this Melbourne theme? When I was showering the other day, I had that thought like, wow, my parents have sacrificed a lot, right? And it's like what you said, survival. Like. Mm they were surviving for us and th they were able to survive coming from a third world country as well. And to, to give us the life that we have today. And just like, wow, like, I'm so grateful for my parents right now, you know? So it's dude, to, uh, that's like the, the, my why as well. Sometimes where it's just like, fuck, I want, how can I give back to my, my parents as well? You know, it's interesting because the experience from migrant and refugee families is that they've come from, air quotes, poor countries, right? Or those countries that have been heavily affected by war mm. as well. So there mm. is a scarcity mindset in how they're living their lives. My family, our families, I could probably say is more frugal. They'll push you down maybe an academic path as well. And that's the stereotype of Asian, Middle Eastern ethnic mm. families, right? Go become a doctor, a lawyer, somebody that could make a very high salary as well. And that's what probably pushed you down the optometry route <laughs> as well. I was hoping right? we were gonna cover that. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I think, you know, education was the biggest priority mm. in our household. And my mom tells me this, when, you know, I'm 22 now, my mom tells me this very openly. She put a lot of pressure on me mm. to, you know, nap plan things like, OC classes, things like selective schools, that was big for her because education was, you know, the thing that would catalyze us going from this situation to 
this situation. Mm -hmm. And so um, education is a big focus. And obviously I had to do something that was respectable um, and something that would be, you know, in, in an essence, marry me off well. Um, <laughs> and so I, I was like, okay, I was very into the healthcare side. I really yeah. liked medicine. I really liked giving patients that interaction. And so I chose optometry. Um, why I'm still trying to figure that out to this very day, but it's, it's always that area where I was just like, I want to give back to that patient human level. Mm. Um, and I think that's helped me in business as well, in the sense that I think healthcare professionals are one of the, I, I said, if not the most empathetic people you'll ever meet, mm -hmm. because they will see things like diseases. Mm -hmm. They will see things like, you know, telling people that you will, you know, essentially pass, pass in a couple of months. Mm -hmm. That empathy is unparalleled. And when you are going through that motion of becoming a healthcare professional, you have to learn that. You have to learn how to communicate that. And so I think that's helped me a lot in terms of dealing with people, especially people over, you know, older than me, mm -hmm. um, because I get to see things in a different lens of from a human level rather than what can you give me? What can I give you? Mm. Rather than that, it's more about, okay, what is something that you're going through? What is your problem? How can I come and complement that? Not fill that gap. I don't think anybody needs to fill any hole that you have. That's your responsibility. How can I complement and support what you're doing? And so I think that comes through my healthcare background. Yeah. But mother still wants to do two pieces of paper on the wall. So <laughs> we're still pushing through. You're still studying <laughs> at the moment. Part time. One year left, part time. Yeah, incredible. So still the optometry course as well or? Absolutely. Still <laughs> the optometrist um, dream that my mother has. Yeah, yeah. But I'm finding with what your mum said, I put a lot of pressure on you as a young person. It's incredible for her to have that awareness and the ability to talk to you openly and frankly mm. about that mm. as well. Sounds like you have an incredible relationship with her. Yeah, I think and over the years, the more older I get, I think it's improved incredibly. Like I've always been very tight with my mom. We've yeah. always been two peas in a pod. But in the last five, six years or so, especially my teen years, we've just dropped any walls that ever existed. Mm. It was all about what I, my mom always says, I want to be your friend. I want you to be able to be comfortable and tell me rather than you, you know, eloping, for example, and running away and doing all these things that other kids might be doing. And so I think she's given me that safe space. Mm -hmm. um, obviously there's still a lot of pressure being yeah. the eldest in the family. I've got a younger brother. There's a lot of pressure for me to be a role model, to be, you know, somebody again, to make sure those sacrifices don't go, um, you know, to, to waste, mm. but she's given me that space to talk to her, to communicate with her. Um, and now I obviously call her right before this podcast. She's currently <laughs> overseas, but I gave her a call outside. We saw like, mom, I'm doing this. I'm going to do this at lunch and then I'm going to have dinner. Just that having that relationship has made mm -hmm. a massive difference. And I get a lot of my personality from her. I am an introvert. Mm -hmm. um, I love my time alone. <laughs> I get that from her, my, my personality, my, what I care about, um, be being cold and, you know, sort of, you know, um, you know, being calm and stuff. I get that from my mom. Yeah. Uh, just to be still um, and learn that as well. Um, so yeah, I get my personality from my mom more than anything. So tell us more about your mother's and father's journey to Australia because she was born in Bangladesh. No. So my mom was born in Pakistan. Uh -huh. So she was born in Islamabad yes. in Pakistan. And my dad was born in Kolkata in India. So my dad's family's from India. My Mum's family was from Pakistan or what we call East Pakistan before um, the war happened. And they both migrated to Bangladesh and then they had me. And so I am like, as I call in every corporate setting, the walking definition of South Asian. Like I'm like a tick of the box whenever I do like a keynote there. Um, and so they obviously had the upbringing overseas. But the thing is like, 
my family, like they did really well for themselves. Like my mum was, you know, graduate from commerce, had like a very nice office job. Uh, my dad was doing really well. And the reality is they gave all of that up for their children because my dad had an opportunity to, to, to do a PhD, which he never wanted to do, but thought this could be really cool to mm. go to another country like Australia right. and raise his kid there. And my mom didn't even think twice. She gave up that very prestigious job, which for me, when I think about it, I, I don't think I could do that. What was it? What was the role? It was, you know, at an office back back in the day. And obviously my mom being a female, she mm. being in that role was unheard of, mm. but she was a director in that capacity at a, at a time, which was like, I think the year 2000, 2001, mm -hmm. which is unheard of. Yeah. And so she was, you know, breaking all these bamboo ceilings, all of these things, and she gave it all up because of a one-year-old kid on the floor. And she sacrificed all of that. And for me, when I think about if I had a kid, for example, and I had to go to another country right now and drop my whole career, I don't think I could do that. Like, it would take me a lot to mm -hmm. do that. And so when I see that from my parents, I'm just like, I have to live a life that gives all of that back to them. Mm. Otherwise, what's the point? I am a waste. Mm. And so I think understanding that and processing that has been a bit of a journey. Mm -hmm. um, but now I wish I communicate with them. I tell them what I'm doing, what I'm not doing. If I've achieved something, I want to invite them more than anything. My, I want my mom to be my plus one mm. at, <laughs> at, at events and awards. And so, yeah, try to give back um, and live a life that's worth yeah. their sacrifices. So I'm curious, she was born in Islamabad. How did she make it to East Pakistan or in Bangladesh? Yeah, absolutely. So it was during the wartime. So uh, my my mum's side of the family, uh, they were all working in Pakistan. So they spoke Bangla. So as mm -hmm. when, when the war happened, yeah. um, but they weren't called Bengali at that time. So they were working there. That was how it was happening. And then the wartime happened. What year was this? What year was this? This was about 1975. So after partition. After then. partition, yeah. yeah. So there was the mass migration to uh, Bangladesh. And then after that, there were people like, do, I, do we want to leave? Do we want to stay here? And then ultimately my grandpa um, decided, no, we want to go. We care about our language. We care about our culture. Um, and then during the wartime, and some of the stories I hear from my grandma, for example, was yeah. ridiculous, like, just gunshots while they're driving. Mm. They may happen to go down like movie scenes yeah, that you think, yeah. oh, it happens with, you know, in John Wick, for example, <laughs> that actually happened in yeah. South Asia. Crazy. And so when I hear those things, I'm like, the fact that they all made it out, I'm obviously very grateful. Mm -hmm. But again, it's another oomph in me where it's just like, how can people make that much sacrifices and suffering, but still, you know, live to tell the tale in mm. such a happy and, you know, supportive way that to me, the human spirit, that's unparalleled. And so when I hear that, when they moved to Bangladesh and they had me, um, you know, uh, that's why culture is so important to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I do class myself as a Bangladeshi, Bangladeshi Australian. I don't class myself as, you know, Pakistani or Indian. I mm. obviously, my families are from there, but I'm Bengali uh, yeah. more than anything. So I'm very proud of that. Wasn't always, obviously mm -hmm. growing up being a, a person of color is always very difficult. Um, <laughs> but I think you realize that culture is the most important thing to you when it comes to your values. Mm. And the more I can lean into that, the more I can show other young Bengalis to say, no, you can do it. Or if I can do it, you can, you can do it even better than me. Creating that standard instead of that inferiority complex that a lot of us suffer from, mm. actually, how can we empower ourselves and feel like I belong? Yeah. I can do this. If he can do it, I can do it better. Yeah. That's what I want to do. And the beautiful thing of your maintenance of culture and you're still bearing the torch, right? And I didn't realize, but you're a Muslim man as well. And you're 
observing fast during this time. So tell me about fasting right now and no caffeine and its impact on your high performance. But what does the practice and, and holding your religion close to you, how does that make you feel as, as a human going through this world? Yeah, absolutely. And I do apologize if I'm licking my lips too much. It's because I have no water in, in, in my system. Um, no, I think for me, obviously Ramadan is one of those periods where, you know, it's, it's different. High performance in Ramadan, I think, is peak. Even though I'm not having my caffeine, I'm like, I'm a coffee lover. I love my coffee. I love um, caffeine. But it's just a different spiritual essence more than anything. It's mm-hmm. the one month, I think a lot of Muslims can agree, where you just feel the strongest God that you can ever feel. And for me, my values more than anything come from my faith. Mm-hmm. The ability to do good to, for others, the ability to, you know, um, be a role model, to be, um, to, you know, servitude to other people. That comes from my faith. We talk about culture, but where does, you know, the culture come from? What your purpose is. And so mm. that's how I've been raised. Um, and I went to an Islamic school as well, uh, funnily enough. So that was my um, upbringing there. Was it good, bad conversation for another time? But I think <laughs> identity has always been one of those things where I was just like, do I want to lean into it? Do I not want to, want to lean into it? Yeah. And I think being a first-generation migrant, being a person of color, being a Muslim, these are things now that I unequivocally talk about and openly talk about uh, because I think it's important. I think yeah. representation is very important. I think the ability for me to come and pray um, in, in a situation like this when, because I need to, I think mm. is important but we don't talk about it as much as you know we did when we had to. Um, so I think it's important that we talk about it, but also how can I lead by example? And so, mm. you know, I'm very openly Muslim. I love talking about it. Um, I actually did, a, did an article um, yesterday got a, for a question um, where they were asking, you know, what does Ramadan mean to you for like nine honey, channel nine honey, which I've never <laughs> heard of before, but I was like, sure, I'll, I'll respond. So yeah. yeah, I think representation is very important. That's why I love talking about these things because you need to, otherwise you feel lonely. You feel like, is it right? Is it not right? Because who determines that anyways? So what were your experiences growing up as a young Muslim boy, young man? And you see in the media, right? Mm -hmm. It's always common that the media always pushes a certain narrative Mm -hmm. and look in a world where it was post 9-11 as well. And it still is. I would think to a very hard time to be a Muslim person because of all this negativity that's been pushed around, a lot of misconception, misunderstanding for what is a very, very peaceful religion as well. Your greeting is assalamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you, right? And the response is peace be upon you as well. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, growing up, I've got it in it all. I've been caught terrorist. I've been caught everything that you can uh, in the public setting. And obviously for a, you know, when you're a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, yeah. that's debilitating. That is something where you're just like, okay, I'm going to hide it. And I think I definitely went through a few years where I was just like, I'm, I'm not going to even talk about it. I'm not going to openly do it. When I'm at home, fantastic. I'm, I'm in my comfort level. But when I'm outside, no. Even though I went to an Islamic school, mm. in that I- ecosystem, that bubble, I, am, I can be myself. But once I go to public transport, no, I don't want to talk about it. And so I think that insecurity, again, with the narrative that, that's always been pushed um, down our throats, it's always, it's always been quite difficult. But I think the older I got, the more I realized it's important to embrace it. 
because the reality is people are suffering in silence, mm-hmm. whether it's in religion, whether it's in um, you know, culture, whether, whether it's in your identity, people are suffering in silence. And all it takes is, as you said, one person to just hold the torch, even if mm-hmm. it burns a little bit. <laughs> For them to hold the torch, it makes a magnitude, you know, a mass um, amount of people will actually look at you and say, okay, if they can do it, I can embrace it too. Mm-hmm. So I think that's always been sort of my motivation around again, identity and being mm. Muslim and all these things and going through the adversity, racism, discrimination, all these things. It's the idea of how can I improve the collective quality of life? And the only way I've found that's been meaningful for me is, again, holding that torch and trying to pave the way. I don't have to because it's, you know, the paths will always change, but how can I at least do my part so that mm. I can, you know, try to you know show someone else that it's possible more than anything. So the thing with community work and advocacy work is, and from our, my observations is that we've both and all of us and those in the space have gone through such darkness sometimes as well. And we don't want others to feel the same way. Mm. And so that helps us to hold the torch but to help others who may fall into the similar traps that we have in the past. And it's just lending out a hand. Hey, come up. You don't have to experience that. Mm. I'll share with you my story, my journey, so that we can move and progress forward as humanity, right? Not just as uh, a person that's similar to me, but it's everybody as well. And look, I'll let Jasper comment because Pre the podcast, I was like, hey, check out Jahin's TED Talks and things like that. And your message of representation of you can't be what you can't see, Mm. right? That's so important. And it feels like it's only in my awareness has been built around this sense of representation probably for about five or seven years, right? It's still new. But when growing up, I wish I had this message growing Mm. up because we'd be so much further ahead. But despite us not having it, this new younger generation have the message as well. So I think it's a great time to be alive, (laughs) isn't it? Definitely. It is a great time to be alive. And like you said, I wish when I was a bit younger, I wish I had exposure to that as well. Because I always thought, oh, I'm an Australian, you know, like I'm an Aussie, so I'm no different to these guys. Like, but I'm realizing now like, fuck, maybe I was a Mm. bit different because of my skin color or my culture, our, our differences. And uh, I always look back at this time when my cousins came from the Philippines, they started living with us. And they asked me, oh, like, what's what's your nationality? And I'm like, oh, I'm Australian. It's like, nah, you're Filipino. I'm like, no, I'm Australian. And I got confused with that conversation. It's always been replaying in my mind. I'm like, am I Australian or am I Filipino? I've always been so confused. So to and but like I, I didn't really see that representation was a, an important conversation back then but now i'm seeing it now mm. like when we see like josh cool about in the ufc mm-hmm. he's a filipino and he won his his fight like uh, a month ago or something i could feel that oh man like the villas are like they're winning they're winning something i felt part of that win so that's when i felt truly felt like oh wow representation mm. is really important 
like now we feel seen as a community like the filipinos right and we're being a part of all these community events mm. these filipino community events i'm like wow it's it, it's amazing to see that the filipino community is coming together mm. and it's so important for us to share our cultures with the world so like i'm glad lim, lim brought that those conversations and topics to light with our our, our brand because now I'm seeing like, wow, it's important to embrace mm. your culture as well. So, mm. yeah. I love that. No, even for me, for example, like when every time I'm on media or on TV or mm. my face is somewhere in, in the public, you think you'd get some comments um, mm. on social media about, you know, what you've done or how you performed. The main comments that I get from people is, oh my God, you're Bengali. <laughs> That's the main comment that I get. You're what? You're Bengali. So, uh -huh. you're actually Bengali? Like you, you were born in Bangladesh? Like. That's the surprise. Yeah. Or you're South Asian? Like, that's the main comment that I get. More than how did I perform? Did I say something <laughs> right? Did I say something wrong? Am I getting cancelled? No. It's all about, oh, you're this? Mm. Like you, you grew up in Western Sydney? Like what? Yeah. And so I always find that quite amusing because it's just the reality, as you mentioned, it's just seeing people. It, mm. Sometimes you don't even know what the substance is. Yeah. As long as you know they're doing something well, it doesn't, know, it doesn't matter what they're doing. It's just that representation. It it really does light your spark more yeah, than anything. It does. And like where you come from is an instant connector for for people as well. So like say if you met someone just at school, it's like, oh you're Filipino. I was like, oh I feel mm -hmm. Filipino too. And you have that instant connection, right? Mm -hmm. I think did we speak about that in the in the podcast? Was it with um Hashman, was it? I think we we brought that up and it's just like wow you realize that's like oh wow you know we could go to a different country and if you find someone that's filipino it's like oh wow like we instantly have a connection mm. we can easily get, build a relationship and that's why it's like so important to to have these communities and make them learn that these communities is, exist and what you guys do in the community space is like amazing it's incredible so i'm glad what you, i'm glad to to be exposed to this now so what does it mean to be australian for you mm. <sighs> You're going to get me cancelled. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think what it means for me to be Australian, it's, it's an interesting one. I think more than anything, it's just, you know, embracing your own identity. Mm, I think Australia yeah. is very, very privileged to be a very multicultural country. More than mm -hmm. I've had the chance to go to the US, for example, uh, different countries. And Australia by far is incredibly multicultural. It's mm. beautiful. There are a lot of issues. There's a lot of systematic issues. There's a lot of uh, things that we need to address. But being Australian for me is all about just, you know, inclusivity, mm -hmm. about just allowing you to do your thing and being happy with that. Yeah. I think that's very important, yeah. you know, especially when you're growing up, you feel like you have to you know, sort of mold yourself into something that already exists. That's what I felt like I had to do. Mm -hmm. But then yeah. the older you get, the more you find your feet, you realize, no, I can actually do what I'm doing here, make an impact, yeah. but also be an Australian, mm. also be part of this ecosystem this community this country and so i think again embracing who you are yeah. more than anything as romanticized as that sounds <laughs> as as glorified as that sounds i think fundamentally that's what it means for yeah. me to me for me to be able to do what i'm doing what i care about mm. and just be okay with that i don't yeah. have to fit into anything I, I can learn from other people but i have to mold myself into anything yeah yeah so what kind of impact do you want to have in australia yeah, I think for me, number one is obviously, as you mentioned, you can't be what you can't see. Mm. I think all my te um, sort of keynotes or any speech I give, that is a title that I always put yeah. because it's so important to me. It's even on my wall. Every time I wake up and I wake up from sleep, I turn right. That's the first thing I see every moment I yeah. wake up. So I think representation, being mm. able to leave behind a legacy 
obviously when you die and people don't even care about you but it's <laughs> they care about the idea that you stood for and mm-hmm. so for me if i can leave that idea that he created a pathway for mm. others that's it that's sort mm. of um what i want to leave behind and in terms of impact obviously the space i'm in with the asc the way i see our success met- metric how i measure success is how can we make other people successful the more successful other people are, the more successful we as a company are. And so that's how I see it. Whether it's the monetary side of the revenue they make, whether it's, you know, the, the support, the skills that they learn in mm. terms of the non-monetary side, whatever it is, our success metric is how other people are successful. The more successful they are, the more successful we are. Mm. If they're unsuccessful, that's on us. That's how I see it. I feel responsible for that. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, those two go in hand to hand to show that it's, it can be possible, but also show that they can make their own path out of it. Yeah. It just doesn't have to be through me. Amazing. So do, do you have any like guides, mentors that you always go back to for advice? Is that something you, you Yeah, have? absolutely. I think, I think, I don't like the word mentors. Right. I think uh, the word mentor is when you go to someone and say, can you mentor me? Yeah. They panic. <laughs> like how much time, what do you need from me? And so I like to call uh, like advisors. That's Ooh. the word I use. So I have a bunch of advisors yeah. in my life from different age groups, different demographics, different industries mm. where I just go to or text and I'm like, hey mate, I don't know what's happening here. Can you give me a solution or can you yeah. guide me through it? And building that relationship obviously comes through mm. actually getting to know them rather than me going to a coffee catch up and saying, can you give me some advice? What yeah. should I do here? Going to a coffee catch up and saying, what, what makes you tick? Yeah. What is your motivation? When we <laughs> caught up in Sydney, mm. it was literally about what, what, what's burnout like to you? What, what's your life? What's your morning routine? Like actually getting to know people. Mm. And yeah. then eventually when you click, that's when they become an advisor to you or yeah. you can learn from them. But also they can learn a lot from you as well. Mm. I think even when it comes to mentorship, for example, the mentor-mentee relationship is very important. As a mentor, you learn so much from your mentee mm-hmm. and vice versa. Yeah. So I think building genuine relationships and being curious about people, I think is incredibly underrated because we always go and we're just like, I want to collaborate with you. Let's jump on a call or grab a coffee. Yeah. There's always an expectation. There's always a pressure. Mm. But if you just say, hey, if you're free, I'd love to jump on a 20-minute call just to learn more about you. I just want to ask questions. And if something clicks from there, fantastic. You've got project. You've got a program or something beautiful coming out of it. But if you go in with an expectation, Mm. that's not being curious about people. You're just going there to get something out of them. And so I think being curious, and that's how I have a lot of mentors from different industries because I'm just like, if I see a post they've done on LinkedIn or social media, Mm -hmm. I ask them, how did that feel? Why did you do this? Not, mm-hmm. how can I do this as well? Mm. Guide me through this. No, it's how did you feel? And being curious about people and asking a lot of questions. One of the main things I've learned this year is asking questions is revolutionary. The more questions you ask and you actively listen and then respond back rather than you saying, this is what I do, this is what I'm doing. How can we collaborate or do mm. something together? Mm. Asking questions. Yeah. That's the best way because people love talking about themselves. Genuinely as human beings, we love that. Yeah, Even if you're quiet or introverted, some people are just looking for that question to be like, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. Thank you for being interested. Yeah. And so asking questions, being interested in people, it's revolutionary. I love that. Tell us about your chat with Mark Randolph. Oh. He is the co-founder of Netflix. Oh, wow. And it's funny, it's, it's pretty much identical to that situation with Sahil mm. where I saw a tweet of his and it was something to do with young CEOs and what should a young CEO do? And obviously in his context, young CEO was about 35 to 45. Mm. And so I was like, I've got some entrance there. So I found his email um, through a bit of searching and I sent him a very quick 
short email. It was like, hey, I'm a 22 year old CEO of Australia's largest innovation provider. I saw your tweet. I know you mentioned this age range, but I'm also in, in a younger age range. Can I jump on a call and learn more mm. about your experiences or something you would tell a younger version of Mark? Mm -hmm. Less than 24 hours, he got back to me with only one response. He's like, can you email this to my personal email? And he sent me his personal email. Mm -hmm. And I emailed the same thing to his personal email. And then we jumped on a call. Wow. This is a co-founder of Netflix. Yeah. I was shaking. <laughs> this is Netflix that I watch on my couch. Yeah. He created that. And I literally just asked him, what advice would you give? I didn't say, I want you to mentor me. I want you to come and speak at our events. None of that. Mm -hmm. I was like, what piece of advice would you give to a young person in this generation yeah. compared to what you would did when you built Netflix? Mm. And the advice he gave was, you know, very long. And I actually recorded that um, Zoom um, uh, call, obviously with his permission and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and I go back to it quite often because a lot of wisdom around experience and, you know, amplifying the strengths you already have. Like being a 22 year old, I'm competing in a sense with 55 year old CEOs. The yeah. average age of a CEO in Australia is from 47 to 55. Mm -hmm. So every time I go into any room or conference, I'm speaking at an event, I'm the youngest every single time. Mm -hmm. And so for his advice for me was, instead of focusing on those disadvantages, just amplify the strengths you already have. What are some strengths you have? For, for example, for me, I'm like, I like communicating. I like talking to people. I like public speaking. Let me amplify that more. Mm -hmm. yeah. I love people. I love empathy. Let me actually care about people. Mm. So amplifying that rather than saying, oh, I don't have an MBA from Harvard or <laughs> you know, I don't have that lived experience. I don't have wife and kids. Yeah. Amplifying the things I already have and then leaning into that. And I, and I hear that quite often every yeah. time I need, I'm feeling down or something. <laughs> I, I go back to you know, the advisors. I see him as an advisor now, not because he's going to come back and talk to me again or meet me in person ever. Yeah. But it's just the idea that he advised me in a time when I needed it. Mm. Uh, and then obviously I'd love to speak with him again of and meet course, him in person. Yeah. But that was the thing, hustling again. Seeing that tweet pop up <laughs> randomly, let me send him an email. I'll yeah. find his email somehow <laughs> and send him an email. And that's where it went. Damn. So what advice would you give on top of all that for young people who are still trying to figure themselves out, mm. who want to build what you've built or maybe even better, right? How how will you enable them with maybe a, th a thought bubble of your knowledge? Mm. How can they hustle or how can they build the way you've built? Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, my piece of advice would come down to two words. And these are two words that I tell my team as well. We've got a team of about 36 across the country. And these are the two words that I always say, and it's fail forward. Mm. Fail forward. Yeah. I think we're always so afraid of rejection. Mm -hmm. We're so afraid of what will other people think. We're so afraid of the idea that, you know, it will go wrong. But the reality is it will actually go wrong. Yeah. You will always make mistakes. Yeah. You will always figure it out. There will never be a time where you're like, I've got everything together. Because the next day something will happen and you'll be like, oh, I've got to fix this again. Mm. You are always making it up as you go. Yeah. I've had the chance to speak, obviously to Mark, for example, but mm -hmm. a bunch of CEOs from the, the big four, from sure. different companies. And the main takeaway that I get from every single one of them is you're always figuring it out. Mm. You're always making it up as you go. The, the imposter syndrome is always there. And so my piece of advice and thing that help, has helped me in the last few years is fail forward. Mm -hmm. Have the liberation to just make mistakes, learn from it, but never, never give up. Always find alternate pathways. There's mm. always a way around difficulties. And in most cases, the way around, you're just gonna be like, this is so much better than what I wanted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is incredible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. every, every situation I look back at, and it's a testament for my life as well. Every time I'm just disappointed and deflated by something that happened, 
something else happens after that. I'm just like, this is 10 times better. Mm. This has made me feel even happier. This is what I've, what I needed, but I never wanted. Yeah. And so I think failing forward, giving yourself that um, autonomy to make mm. mistakes, but learning from them and just keep going because mm. perseverance gets you very far. It's, it's a beautiful message, right? And what they don't tell you as a young person is that nobody really knows what yeah. they're doing. Straight up. Yeah. We are giving it a crack. We're <laughs> taking actions every day. We're building upon that momentum of the previous actions and we're failing forward. Mm. So that's an incredible summary of, of what you've been able to do so far because as a young person during COVID, starting a business called Breathe, teaching public speaking from somebody who just wanted to learn the art of it themselves, right? And then pushing out content over TikTok, getting, <laughs> no, but getting inbound leads from that and, and going out to ASX 200 companies and big private companies that have like the sh all the shine in the world. But to not know what you're doing and going out there and giving it a crack and failing forward. So I think that's incredible advice and, and such uh, a beautiful summary of, I think your rise to date mm. as well, just giving it a bloody crack. So one of the things that I've done recently as well and thinking it from a diversity aspect is I went to training at the local footy club the other day for the first time, mm. right? And think about this, you rock up, there's a field of 30 blokes there. They all seem very Aussie, right? Like I'm finding myself accentuating my Australian accent being in the room mm. with these people. So it's like, yeah, right, yeah, I'm talking like this. <laughs> oh, don't do that again. <laughs> I won't do that again. Um, but it's, it's such, it was obviously scary, but also and makes me feel alive to be able to do something for the first time and join these people. And obviously you're nervous, right? I could barely stick a mark because it was raining and it was slippery. And I just wanted to share this because I find how important it is and coming back to representation as well. I wish that there was more like Asian footy players running around mm. in the mm. AFL, but I'm, I'm curious to see what other spaces do you think need more diversity of people that look like yourself or myself and, and what type of work are you pushing so that there are smooth pathways for young people going forward, that the lights are hanging up so the pathway is illuminated as well. So I think it leads very well into the work that you're doing with ASE Group, ASE Group, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I think for me, in terms of where I want to see representation, obviously I come from a youth advocacy background. Mm -hmm. So the first couple of years that I started my leadership journey was all around advocacy. How can I advocate for young people, multiculturalism, and now obviously with ASE, it's a, more of a business context. But I love that because what I've realized running, a, you know, leading ASE for the last six months or so um, has been the idea that businesses do run the world. The economy is all around money. Mm -hmm. As much as you talk about, you know, representation and media and all these mm. things, fundamentally, if you don't have the resources, the funding, the support, you can't put anything out. You mm. can't actually substantially do anything. 
finances are always the biggest hurdle for a lot of organizations, a lot of grassroots, mm-hmm. a lot of community initiatives. Yeah. And so for me, my mission with ASC, the Australian School of Entrepreneurship, is all about how do we empower Australians? How do we empower communities that are underprivileged, un, you know, marginalized? How can you provide them with the skills so that if they want to start a business, fantastic, they can contribute to the economy there with their baby, whatever they create, or they can be really good employees, or they can have the skill to you know, be on media or be a politician. Mm-hmm. That's my mission. How yeah. can we equip them with the life skills? So that's what our industry is. The soft skills, as they call it, or employability skills. But the way I see it is it's life skills. Things like public speaking, things like starting your own business. You don't have to. It could be a side hustle. It could be something you do on the side, but it's all about giving them the, the autonomy that yeah. they can say, I can do it if I wanted to. So that if we have another COVID period, for example, yeah. we don't come out of it feeling hopeless and miserable. We come out of it thinking, okay, I've had this horrible period, but I've got these skills that I've learned. I can bounce back. Mm. I can be resilient. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is my entire mission. That's the reason I obviously started Breathe because I was very, very passionate about communication. I think communication is the most important skill mm. in any industry, in anything that you do. And then obviously now ASC, it's much more, you know, there's more skills than just communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love that because again, our success metric is how can we make other people successful? And if we can see representation through businesses, business leaders, I think that will change a lot of the narrative we see in communities. And then from there, obviously politics, the decision makers, what they're doing, the policy makers, mm. seeing representation there. And obviously mm-hmm. in media, media does help, um, but media is all about raising your voice. The actions come, I think, from the businesses and the politicians because they're the ones that are actually, you know, putting money in or putting money out of communities or initiatives. Mm-hmm. Because if you ask any young people, for example, they all have ambitions. They always want to do something for the community. But the biggest hurdle is where do we get funding from? <laughs> mm. Or else they have to volunteer. And volunteering is a fantastic thing. It's changed my life. I, yeah. I used to do full-time volunteering when I first started. But the reality is more than time, it's energy. Mm. Having the energy to volunteer and then work and study, it's exhausting. It's genuinely exhausting. So if you can have that financial support or that funding, it makes a massive difference. So that's sort of what my mission is for the ASA. Again, only six months into the role, so <laughs> pretty, pretty fresh, um, but still learning the ways and trying to make an impact in that lens. So what impact are you seeing so far? Six months, although a short time, you've got the backing of the ASA group, some incredible investors behind the scenes as well, but also a team of 30 nationwide as well. So tell us about a bit more detail and some of the programs that you're running for, for young people or organizations out there as well yeah i mean it's the fact that you articulated like that it's crazy like what um no i think for me ASE is all about providing life skills education so obviously we are the australian school of entrepreneurship the the the, the words make you seem like we're a school we're not a school we're mm. a fully fledged business and entrepreneurship we our focus isn't for everyone to be entrepreneurs otherwise the economy would collapse that would be horrible for everyone our focus is for everybody to have the entrepreneurial mindset. Mm-hmm. So having public speaking skills, for example, or personal branding skills, AI skills, cybersecurity skills, that's what we do. And so we work with uh, about 450 schools across the country. Uh, we work with about 220 local councils, different corporates, different sports teams, all around giving them employability skills that are accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, when you do training, I'm sure for our different jobs, training is doing these workshops, these programs, they're boring. Mm. They are long, they are arduous, they are backdated. 
So what we try to do is bring more of that fresh take, more relevance of, okay, we're doing this training or we're doing workshops around this, but AI is taking over the job entire market. How do we make sure we, you know, take that into consideration as well yeah. in the entrepreneurship, again, mindset side of things. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's been incredible. We work with about 180,000 people across the country yeah, every right. single year, mm -hmm. uh, which is a lot of people to say the least. Um, and obviously being a young CEO, I have to figure out my leadership first and foremost, but also be responsible for 30 plus other people across the country, not just from one state, every single state mm -hmm. in Australia. <laughs> and we're also doing a lot of international gigs this year as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been a learning curve more than anything. It's been exciting. It's been chaotic. It's been exhausting. Um, but more than anything, I love what I do. Mm. I genuinely love the impact I'm able to make to see people start their own businesses. One of the metrics that we talk about um, at the ASC is obviously we, we talk about the case studies. You talk about videos that you take of people who have started mm. their own businesses yeah. or got new jobs. Fantastic. But one of the things is the money side of things. We do skills training do people actually make money? Do people actually start their own businesses and mm -hmm. make revenue? And so for us, if you look at our website, in the last three years, $2.2 million is what our participants and our alumni have made in terms of their investment, uh, sorry, in their business revenue from investments, from in-grant funding. That gives me adrenaline. Mm -hmm. The fact that yeah. we're not just coming into a room and being like, oh, you can start a business. Here's how to pitch. Here's how to do this. They're actually making money. And these people that are making money, it's like 14. 15, wow. 16, 17, mm -hmm. young people, young Australians. And so for me, being able to give them that autonomy to just give them that option. They don't have to do it all the time. They don't have to do it mm -hmm. full time, whatever it is. Just giving them the option and that hope that it is possible. Mm. That's my impact. That's what I will leave behind because obviously being a young entrepreneur while I was studying <laughs> optometry, that's unheard of. Like people are like, you studied optometry, what, why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I want to show that it's possible, that yeah. you can do it. You can be multifaceted. You can have more than one interest and keep your mother happy. Um, but it's the idea of, again, making other people successful, mm. giving them the joy of, you know, not only a business, but I call, I don't even call ASC my company. I call it like my baby. Like I put so much time and effort every single day. Yeah. It's my baby. And I want other people to feel that affection, that mm. that joy, that, that that hustle more than anything. Yeah. So it's fascinating in terms of the community space. We do talk a lot about inclusion and things like that, but we don't talk about the driving heartbeat that allows companies to survive, right? Which is money and funding. But it sounds like you guys are doing incredible work there. Tell us more about the portfolio companies and those who have been the most successful in combination to, to build a business at a young age and then cumulatively, anyways, <laughs> to make $2.2 million worth of revenue for those businesses is, is incredible. Tell us about those businesses. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those businesses are just literally young people at schools, at universities, giving it a shot. You know, things like selling soap, which is um, formed in the shape of the Millennium Falcon, if you're a Star Wars fan, <laughs> selling that. Yeah. Wow. You know, selling sustainable, you know, clothing, for example, starting online businesses, starting on TikTok, for example, mm -hmm. knowing that it's possible and making money out of sponsorships, getting investment, getting yeah. in-grant funding. Mm. You know, we do a thing where uh, we provide letters of support from the ASC group. So, mm. when we find a participant who wants to apply for a massive grant or, you know, get investment, we provide letters of support, we fix their pitch deck, we provide the mentoring and seeing them be filled with the joy of the fact that we're giving them so much attention. I think that's like, you know, it, it's what keeps me um, going every single day because we see the results. Mm -hmm. 
you know for me for example even with breathe when i first started breathe i had no business literacy skills yeah mm. i come from a healthcare background and so i was like what where do i get customers from and so i was like youtube is cool youtube i could be a youtuber they make a lot of money i can't i don't know how to edit videos <laughs> i don't know how to do any of this yeah so what can i do something shorter TikTok is like seven seconds yeah that's ridiculous and people do educational videos so i don't see anybody doing public speaking educational videos that's how i started mm -hmm. literally on a sunday at 4 p.m i'd record like 10 videos maximum an hour horrible videos don't get me wrong like quality was poor but it was me putting out content yeah and that lasted for six months yeah. um you know worked with people like canva mm -hmm. um, toyota commonwealth bank again cold emails yeah. or their employees seeing my tiktok and reaching out by email and i think you know in six months revenue was incredible but also just the relationships i was able to build you know there was a point where i was like should i drop out of uni like i went through that phase as well <laughs> of course of course <laughs> but it's just the idea not of that that side of the world but more of the side of that it is possible mm. that it can be done while mm -hmm. i'm studying at uni yeah um and so that's what i try to instill in in our participants um we were when we first started ASE, it was meant to be for young australians so working with young people from about you know seven to about 24 mm. that was sort of the age group and then we got a, uh, a tender with um, the Australian Department of Industry. Uh, we were the first small business to receive it, that to win that tender in 35 years. Mm -hmm. And that tender was worth about $5.5 million, which was ridiculous for a small business provider. Yeah. And so we extended the work that we do from um, seven years old to about 70 because yeah. more people, we wanted to more reach more people. And then more recently, we've, uh, we started something called AAC Junior because we were like, why are kids in childcare missing out on those, you know, cute entrepreneurship skills? <laughs> so AAC Junior deals with uh, three-year-olds to seven-year-olds. Mm -hmm. So it's all about giving them accessibility. Um, yeah. How can we make it fun and engaging, but mm -hmm. also again, making it possible, making them believe that if they want to start a business, they can. If they want to be a good employee, they can. But mm -hmm. having those skills, those life skills, you know, the life skills, the soft skills industry is a $7.6 trillion industry across yeah. the world. Globally, yeah. But the reality is it's always taken by a small amount of people, like the learning and development of different corporates. Mm. But they never do it well where it's like accessible, where it's culturally competent, where it's, you know, fun. Mm -hmm. It's always very fearful. When you go to a workshop, it's just 90 minutes, tick the box, leave. What have you learned? Who have you met? Have you yeah. connected with people? Mm -hmm. So I think that human-centered approach has been a massive focus for me and my leadership at ASC, yeah. but also the culture that was formed before I even came. Um, the, the team that I have are phenomenal, genuinely from the bottom of my heart. I'm so grateful for the team that I have because they're passionate people. They yeah. genuinely care about people. Mm -hmm. And when I came in, it was very natural fit because I was just like, we care about the same thing. We had different upbringings completely, yeah. but we care about making other people successful. Mm. And that drive, that, that, that enjoyment um, is, is just insane to say the least. So I keep talking and I keep coming back to this meteoric rise oh, right don't say that <laughs> <laughs> and it's still going there's a lot of fuel in there and you're you're still taking off so I'm, I'm curious about the concept of imposter syndrome as well because to walk in to to go from your baby of breathe where it was a one-person show but also doing incredible work with industry as well but taking that a massive step change, stepping up, turning and and being part of the ASE group with established investors, with a big team behind you. So what did it feel to just come in and say, whoa, but I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're feeling a sense of overwhelm at some points as well. How do you 
how do you fail forward <laughs> with that? And, and tell us about imposter syndrome there. Yeah, I think the biggest thing I've learned about imposter syndrome is that it never goes away. Mm -hmm. It mm. never goes away. And it's funny, I did my second TED talk, um, which was called Leaders of Frauds 2, mm -hmm. where I talk about my experience with imposter syndrome. And again, I've spoken to so many industry leaders, senior you know, executives, CEOs. I've asked them, does imposter syndrome ever go away? Do you feel like you're settling into the role? And these are people like 50, 60 years old who have like accomplished careers. Mm -hmm. And the main response every single time is no, it never goes away. You are always feeling like somebody's coming up behind you. Yeah. You always feel like you're not good enough for this role. Even though you've got achievements, awards, all these accolades, mm -hmm. it's always running behind you. And so I think I've realized that and I've just leaned into it more than anything. Yeah. It's not easy. That feeling is very uncomfortable where you just feel like you don't belong here or someone else should take your take your position. And I think my first three months at ASE were very, very difficult because mm -hmm. I was trying to be someone I wasn't. Yeah. I knew there was a question mark on my forehead as to why a 22 year old, I became CEO 20, uh, one week after I turned 22 years old. So yeah. one week after my 20, 22, uh, 22nd birthday. And I knew there was a question mark on my forehead. So I was like, how can I please people? How can I make sure you know, people like me? How can I be likable? And I was just under so much pressure because I was putting on myself. Mm, and yeah. then I took a bit of time off end of last year. And I was just like, let me actually think about imposter syndrome. Let me actually think about self-doubt. Where does it stem from? And I took about three weeks off. And now this year has been incredible. Mm -hmm. The last three months have been genuinely chaotic, but beautiful in the sense of the business we've developed. Obviously, we got a new investor now. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this shift for me, at least for my leadership was because I stopped trying to be someone I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I leaned into what made Breathe successful. I leaned into what made me feel very comfortable in my leadership. And I just amplified more of that. Yeah. Like, like I said, th small things like communicating more effectively, being more empathetic, asking more questions. Mm -hmm. And I've realized I'm so much more comfortable now. Yeah. I can walk into any room and feel like I am representing this company that I, again, treat like my baby rather than trying to think, oh, I'm 22. I have to prove to myself to answer every question. No, it's how am I the best version of myself? And it's just leaning into the imposter syndrome of understanding, as you mentioned, you're always just figuring it out as you go. Mm, you yeah. never know the answer. You're always making it up on the spot. And if not, you hire people that are smarter than you. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's a long journey, but I think imposter syndrome is, mm -hmm. is a good thing more than anything mm, because yeah. if you can lean into it properly, it keeps you on your toes, but it yeah. also keeps you very excited. And that's how I reframed it more than anything. A nervous excitement. <laughs> Adrenaline. Yeah. Fight or flight. So, I'm also curious about your leadership style as well. How would you define that? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I was actually having a chat um, yesterday about this um, at a networking event. Um, in terms of my leadership style, I've always been a very lead by example type of person. Mm. I've always loved, again, that's why I love high performance because I want to be that person where, you know, at least feels like they've got their stuff together yeah. so that people can see, okay, this is what they're doing. Maybe I can integrate this. Not because they told me to do it, they're doing it themselves. Mm. Um, but also I am very strong on my standards. Mm -hmm. I think at ASC, for example, we have values such as having the wow factor going above and beyond servitude to other people. And so I'm very stern and focused on those, but also tender-hearted in my approach. And what I mean by that is, is that I want us to be the best. We're, mm -hmm. we're already Australia's largest innovation provider. That's, that's a lot of pressure to handle. That's a lot of standards. Mm -hmm. But I also know that things go wrong in life. People will go through breakups, People will go through, you know, mental health struggles. Yeah. People are people. And so, 
even though I have those standards, I need to ma- maintain that my people, my team, I look taken care of, that I'm tender-hearted in my approach. You know, I genuinely feel responsible for not only my team, but also their families. Yeah. Because the reality is yeah. all my, my team members, they will go home to their partners or family. Mm. And if they go home and say, oh, I've had a really rough day, our boss is doing all of this, that falls back on me. That falls, that entire poor experience is on me. Mm-hmm. So I feel responsible not only that they get paid well, but also that the environment, the culture is positive, is ha- has that growth mindset that they're learning, that they're contributing. So I think that's very important for me in terms of leading by example, but also you know ensuring that I'm sticking to my values, but also adapting as much as I can because people are people. Yeah, people will go through ups and downs as I will, and you know adapting with that as well, and making sure I care about the person more than you know the outcome more than anything. Mm. It's so fascinating because. It's that intersection of leadership, but also imposter syndrome as well. As such a young man at 22, coming into the organization, but being, you have to report to a board now, right? You report to a, a, a group CEO, but then you're accountable to your team. So I, I love, you've got a great head screwed on, right? <laughs> because you're leading by example, and it's not just hot air and steam. So your team sees you and they're like, hey, he's walking the walk as well. So we'll, we'll, it'd be easier to follow and then follow in your direction because of such strong leadership in that way. But I also love hearing the tender heart. Mm. Not many people talk about the heart, right? We're in this society where it's just like, all right, we're led by our minds, our eyes. It's all in here. We forget about this. And... I think the tide is changing. I think with yourself as, as a new CEO, but you're bringing the, the more human centered approach, which is slowly changing away from just straight up pure revenue. But this is the, the approach of doing business these days, right? You can't appeal to a millennial Gen Z market if you don't have any heart as mm. well. So there's probably, I think a lot of older CEOs can learn a lot from you as well. And I'm sure they do when you're meeting up with them at business conferences and things like that. So leads next to my next question. What feedback do you get from the OG CEOs <laughs> at the moment? You're how old? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it's interesting. It's quite mixed. You know, there's a lot of people that are supportive. Mm. Um, they will obviously compliment you and say, oh, you're doing much better than I, I was um, at, at my age. And there will be a lot of, you know, pushback as well in the sense where a lot of people will be like, you know, they won't say it to your face, but they'll imply mm. you need to do this. They'll give unsolicited advice more than anything of, you know, you should learn this, you should do this, prepare for this. It's a hard job. They won't be encouraging. So I think it's just take what you can if it's beneficial for you, if not, it's all external noise. Mm. You know, there have been instances mm. where I've had chats with CEOs who, again, have become massive advisors for me, phenomenal human beings who check up on me. I should be checking on them. They're worth like half a billion dollars sometimes. <laughs> Why are they checking up on me? Yeah. But they care. They care about that journey because every single one of them started somewhere. Mm. Every single one of them was 22 at, at one point. Mm-hmm. But then you get the other side of people, you know, sending LinkedIn messages like, uh, you know, you should do this differently or you should do this. Yeah. Again, uns- unsolicited advice. Uh, I've never received any poor um, treatment thus far, 
Um, but in the sense of, you know, I definitely felt like it was implied, mm. um, especially being a person of color more than anything, mm-hmm. being in those rooms, the way people look at you. It's, it's a, there's a lot you can learn from nonverbal communication yeah. than them actually talking to you, uh, especially when I'm stage, for example, some people just tune out or go on their phone. Mm. I know why, because, you know, I'm a 22 year old person of color mm. speaking about leadership when they've got, I know, 50 years of experience in leadership. I, I get that. But it's about taking what you can and collaborating with the people that want to collaborate because you can't make everyone happy. No, You'll always have not. criticism. You'll always be, you know, uh, making mistakes, having faults. But I think it's just about learning from the people that want to open yeah. up and learn. Like yeah. I had a chat um, on Friday with the CEO of Perth Glory uh, in Perth. Mm. So we're doing an event there and I was just reached out to him. Again, hustling mentality. <laughs> and he just gave me some really good advice because I asked for it. I was like, yeah. we're doing an uh, event in Perth for the first time. What is your advice? He's like, oh, we'd love to partner up, um, do this, do that. That was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I went to someone else, they'd be like, oh, couldn't care less, find something else. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just depending on who you can communicate with and lean into that. Not everybody will be receptive to you and that's okay. Because mm-hmm. you don't have to be receptive to everyone else. Yeah. There's been plenty of people who reach out to me, which I can't collaborate with because there's no, no scope for that. Yeah. So it's just being, be, being nice and being kind and realizing all the odds are already stacked against you. It's okay. Just amplify the strengths you already have yeah. and do your best. Look, it's been incredible just sitting down open-heartedly hearing about your journey so far, right? And, and for me, it's it's just so inspiring to see just a young man just straight up hustling and, and asking for advice from some big, incredible stars out there as well. So I just want to thank you for being you and thanking you for, I guess, sitting with us and sharing so much vulnerability mm. at the same time. But I'll give it to Jasper for the three questions and any other questions you've got as well. I think we'll go with three questions, man. So first question, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful for life. Just yeah. breathing. The fact that I get to wake up today, do what I wanted to do and come down here and speak to all, all of you. Yeah. I'm grateful for life, genuinely. That's amazing. I was going to ask before, do you ever like just stop and be like, damn, I've, mm. I've done this? Yes and no. Yeah? The reality is... Not properly. I don't think I've processed the last one to two years mm. at all. I haven't even processed that breathe doesn't exist anymore. I haven't even processed <laughs> ASE. I'm just, I feel, again, I feel like a machine sometimes, yeah. uh, which is something I'm working on. Again, mm. work in progress more than anything. Uh, but it's hard when you've got, like I've got a flight tomorrow at 5.30 and then I've got to be in Canberra and then after that I have to be in Sydney yeah. and then after that I have to be in Melbourne again. And so it's just like, it's hard to process. Mm. And so I think stillness, as we mentioned at the beginning, yeah, it's yeah. something I'm always trying to learn uh, because I want to be more still. I want to actually be like, what have I done? Has that been meaningful? Um, but again, it's a work in yeah. progress. Dude, amazing. Second question, what have you realized? What have I realized? Mm. I've realized that people are phenomenal. Yeah. I think people are incredible, yeah. especially with the team that, I've ha- that I have and working in a team now. It's the people that run a business. It's the people that run a community. Yeah. And the more you can nurture that, the people side of things, mm-hmm. it's fantastic. It's one of the best experiences. It's not about the revenue. It's important, don't get me wrong. Yeah. It's not about the outcomes. It's just, can you do really well with really good people? Yeah. And that's incredible for me. Definitely. Final question. What is a question you ask yourself? What is one question that I ask myself? Am I fulfilled? Mm. After every single day, I ask myself, do I feel fulfilled after yeah. a long day? I don't care about happiness. Yeah. I don't care about if I'm feeling happy or not. I've, I care about if I finish a long day, 
do I feel fulfilled that I was productive and I made a change? Yeah. I ask myself every single day. And what's the answers to that most of the time? Most of the time, yes. Yeah. If I'm you know, going to the gym in the morning, waking up at five o'clock. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I have my off days, um, but, I, but I try to make yeah. it up. I think consistency is important, but also being kind to yourself yeah. is very important. 100%. Look, man, I think I can say for the team, we share admiration for you and you're doing incredible stuff. So thank you for coming on and thank you for taking the time out on the weekend to join us in this conversation today. We really appreciate it, man. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah. So where can people find you and how can they follow you and support you? Um, they can just Google Jaheen Tenji, <laughs> um, my Instagram website, LinkedIn will pop up. Mm. So if anybody needs any support or anything, feel free to reach out. I love connecting with new people yeah. like I have with you, uh, for example. So yeah, feel free to reach out yeah. um, through any social media. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, brother. I really appreciate oh, it. My pleasure. Always stay safe. Always take care and always get up. Peace.